Radio Darkling number 21. Darklings are the uh, sister show to Dark Days Radio, where we uh, cover more specific and uh, in-depth topics, which uh, sometimes are pretty tangential to the overall Dark Days and World of Darkness shows. Uh, I'm, of course, your host, Mike, and I'm joined by Chris. How's it going, Chris? Uh, pretty good. Um, yeah, I'm awaiting craziness to happen at home with arrivals of my cats, but otherwise good. What more can I say other than we have lots of darklings in the uh, <laughs> coming up, don't we? Yeah, we definitely and do. And this is one of them. <laughs> this is the first of a new series as well. So, um, yeah. Right. This darkling is uh, submitted to us by uh, Adrian Stagg, formerly of the Mirage Arcana, and Steve, I don't remember your last name, but Vergast from the old uh, WGPRN forums. So we really appreciate it. This is a darkling covering, uh, basically, it's an introduction to the world of uh, Vampire the Dark Ages and Dark Ages Vampire, which covers a lot of the basic setting elements and uh, a lot of the themes that come into play with the core books. So with that, I think we'll uh, just jump right into the Darkling. Sounds good to me. Welcome, Darker Days listeners, to our foray into the Darklings. My name is Adrian Stagg, former host of the Mirage Arcana podcast, and joining me on the microphones tonight I have... My name is Stephen Nurse. I'm sometimes known as Vergast on the old Darker Days radio uh, website, if anybody remembers me. And this is actually your second foray into Darklings. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I did a review on the Mummy line for Old World of Darkness a while ago. Oh, yeah, I remember that, actually. That that was a, a very good job all round. Oh, thanks, mate. Um, but, you know, with good source material, you know, you get good end products. And that's what we're hoping for tonight, obviously, because we're going to be delving into part one of what will hopefully be a four-part series on Vampire the Dark Ages. Now, before we get started, of course, in fine Darker Days tradition, we've decided that it can't actually fly under the Darker Days radio unless, of course, we've got people from two entirely different time zones on the mic. That'd be about right, wouldn't it, Steve? Yeah, that's right, mate. Uh, I'm in sunny Wales in the UK. In the early morning. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, 10 a.m. here. Whereas I'm in the far-flung distant future of 8 o'clock from Australia. So hopefully between the two of us, we'll be able to make some sense out of Vampire the Dark Ages and hopefully crank out another three episodes for your listening pleasure. Now, what we've decided to do is to break these up into, uh, as I mentioned before, four parts. So tonight what we're going to do is give you a brief overview of Vampire the Dark Ages and why the setting is so much different to that of Masquerade, and also take a look at the clans. Part two, we're going to look at roads. Part three, we'll look at elders and some of the sects which are unique to the Dark Ages setting. And part four, we're going to give over completely to storyteller advice. If there's anything along the way that you want to comment or that you think that we should include in any of those episodes, simply drop us a line and we'll talk about how to do that as we wrap up tonight. Vampire the Dark Ages, we're talking about the purple marble-covered book. We're both on the same book, aren't we, Steve? Yeah, that's right, mate. So we'll go back to the very first iteration of Vampire the Dark Ages because, of course, it was later released, if I remember correctly, as, was it Dark Ages Vampire? I think it was just Dark Ages with Dark Ages Werewolf, Dark Ages Fairy, Dark Ages Mage, kind of bolted on. Uh, I even remember a Dark Ages in- Inquisition or something like that. There was. I think that was near the end of the run. Yeah, that's right. It's in the... Uh in the days when the uh, the old world of darkness was coming to an end and all the rumours were just beginning with the new world of darkness, I think. 
Mm, mm, very much so. So the one that we've got is the old purple marble covered book, which was published in 1996, which seems like an awful long time ago, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I just got out of college at that point. So. And I, I was just getting out of high school, so Vampire the Dark Ages looked pretty good at the time. Just to establish a bit of cred here at the moment, uh, what's your play or storytelling history with Vampire the Dark Ages like, Steve? Okay, well, I was already playing Vampire the Masquerade when this game line came out on the scene and was published in a couple of UK role-playing magazines that kind of piqued my group's inter- uh, interest because we'd always come from a kind of traditional D&D or if anyone remembers Dragon Warriors, the UK version mm-hmm. of the background. And we wanted to do something with a kind of swords and sorcery feel, but still keep playing vampires, because that was the uh, the in thing to do at the time. So we kind of uh, picked up this book, and pretty soon we became deeply entrenched in it. I remember doing a campaign with a friend for perhaps the last two years of my high school. So, you know, uh, so it's, it's, it's that kind of era of my kind of role-playing life where I was just beginning to touch on some of the, uh, the more mature things in storytelling. And Dark Ages opened up a new world to us and allowed us to go back to uh, our own history where, uh, you know, some of the darker aspects of humanity. And it picked off these, you know, these, these kind of uh, images in mine and my friends' minds, and that's where we went off with it. So, What about you, Adrian? Vampire the Dark Ages was one of the very few games. It's one of only three games that I actually pre-ordered and then bought the day that it came out because I was fairly excited about the idea of exploring vampire during this period of history. And after pottering around for a little bit uh, and just playing some one-shots and the like, we then got hooked on the Transylvania Chronicles and also the Giovanni Chronicles. So I did some pretty serious shoehorning and retconning to start off the Giovanni Chronicles in the 1200s rather than the 1400s. And we then embarked on an eight-year campaign, which took us from early 1200s all the way through to Gehenna, and we actually played through the Gehenna sourcebook as well and put a lid on that campaign quite nicely, actually. That's some uh, monolithic gaming there, mate. <laughs> yeah, well, it was at the end. I mean, it was one of those situations where it was really, really hard to end the game, but everybody sort of felt that it was exactly the right time to do so. And Gehenna was released about a year before we actually got around to wrapping things up, but it was just a really nice progression, and we actually ended up with most of the party who finished were the guys who started in Giovanni Chronicles Book 1 eight years beforehand. So we had that really good core of players. That's, that's cool. Really, really cool. So running, running this sort of podcast um, at the moment, it's bringing back a lot of really good memories. Yeah, same here. Okay, so let's jump right in, because obviously the dark uh, medieval world is going to be an awful lot different to Masquerade, and I thought we might spend the first part of this uh, episode looking at what exactly makes it different. So for you, Steve, what's what's the big selling point here? The big selling point for me is it's like Vampire the Masquerade, it's still set in our world, but it's just set in a different time era that is the Dark Ages or the medieval period. I come from a country that's dripping with uh, medieval history and that kind of thing. So it seemed an, a natural kind of thing to be uh, looking at these kind of castles, the kind of uh, the breakup of Europe into uh, countries that sound familiar, but that now no longer exist, like the Holy Roman Empire, those kind of things. And that's a good point, actually, because... Coming from Australia, of course, we have a fairly young history. We're looking at less than 220 years since we've had settlers here, whereas I speak to friends of mine in the UK who say, you know, we've lived in houses that were older than that. Uh, So you sort of don't get that same sense of grandiose history living here. And I think that there is just that, that call that you get from the much older level of culture and also just being interested in that time period just as something as, as a bit of a sideline. I'm certainly not going to claim to be um, educated in European history, but I've certainly got a bit of an interest in that. Yeah, and that's exactly what this game is trying to appeal to, this idea of the Crusades, those kind of images we have in our mind with even Robin Hood is of this kind of era. This is the kind of time that, um, of the world but with vampires and werewolves and all the rest of the 
panoply from the uh, World of Darkness overlaid onto the top in the true White Wolf kind of fashion. So mm. you have um, the kings and queens of Europe being influenced from the from the shadows by uh, vampires. As a by the by, one of the best games I actually ever played in was a Dark Ages werewolf game where the storyteller gave us pre-generated characters and we played Robin Hood and his merry men as uh, werewolf kinfolk. Oh, that's a, that's a really good idea because that ties into the whole kind of uh, Robin of the Hood idea from the Bone Nora books, if you remember those. Yes, yes. And so we, we just had an absolute blast tromping our way around with no historical accuracy whatsoever, but, I mean, when we're talking Robin Hood, there isn't any anyway. In putting that, that fun factor ahead of having to dust off the non-fiction books and find out exactly who was in charge of this area in 1215 and those sorts of things. I think that's the other thing that we should mention to our listeners, that you don't have to have a doctorate in European history. You don't have to know the ins and outs of what happened in that area of France, for instance, from for a 200-year period and be an expert on it. You can just wing it. Portray a world that feels medieval to you, that is, gets your players involved in that kind of medieval kind of feel, or the Dark Ages kind of feel. But don't worry too much about facts, unless that's what really, you know, your players want. As you said, you changed, you changed uh, game line stuff to fit into what you and your friends wanted and you remove the, uh, the Giovanni Chronicles or 200 years back in, uh, backwards in time. But hey, no problem. If that works for you, that's exactly what you've got to go with here. And sometimes I think that people forget that Vampire, Werewolf and all the rest of the world of dark, old world of darkness stuff are sometimes portrayed as having this massive meta plot that you must use. There's all this background that you must use. They always said, even back in the day, that the golden rule was if you don't like it, don't leave it out. So there's still that element of toolbox kind of building on your stuff that comes through from the New World of Darkness. But this is perhaps a bit more in-depth than some of the New World of Darkness kind of lines, like uh, the Requiem for Rome. I mean, the, the Dark Ages line was running at about, oof, was it about 20 books? Yeah. Adrian? Yeah, something like that. It wasn't, it wasn't very many in comparison to the other game lines. No, but it seemed to be that the information they gave you seemed to be very concise. They were big they tended to be on the bigger side. They, they went out and released a whole bunch of uh, clan books mm-hmm. to set out. Uh, I mean, they were all gathered together in, um, is it the Liber Sanguinius or something? Yeah. Like, remember yeah. what they called? Yeah. And you get a number of different a number of different clan books all bound up into one. Yeah, which is good value for your money as well. So we'll have to track them down to see if they're all available through Drive Through RPG as well. Yeah, that's something that perhaps uh, we can talk about next time. In terms of the actual world that you are playing in, one of the big attractions to me is actually the technology level that is presented in the Dark Ages. Because what I find is that an awful lot has obviously changed since when I started playing World of Darkness. I remember when I started playing Werewolf in about 94, 95, and I can very clearly remember a discussion around character creation where somebody said, I've got resources for... I'm going to have a mobile telephone for my character. And the rest of the people around the table burst out laughing, and one of them rather sarcastically said, well, if you own a mobile phone, who are you going to call? Because we didn't actually know anyone who owned one of these devices. Now, of course, you know, fast forward 20 years from there, and they're ubiquitous. And I find that with a lot of games set in the modern era, that Players have a tendency to almost use technology as a bit of a crutch, that back then, if we wanted our characters to investigate something, then we didn't say, well, we'll whip out our smartphone and just Google it. And it just seemed to be that there was a bit more in-depth thinking that was going on. And I think that stripping away all of those technological crutches it does force players to think in a very different way. Uh, how do you feel about that? I totally agree with you, Adrian. This is one of the the, uh, the things that we talked about in our couple of emails before we started recording this show, that technology in our world has made information readily available. In the Dark Ages, you have to go much further to get this information. Perhaps you have to travel halfway across Europe to talk to some Cappadocian elder that's the last owner of a book from Rome. This makes investigating things, much more of a storytelling kind of device that can get your players involved and build upon your chronicle in the most simple things. Like you're saying, Vampire the Masquerade, if you start talking about things your players don't understand, 
They just said, hey, like you say, I whip out my, my smartphone and Google away. That information comes freely, easily. They don't have to do anything for it. They don't have to put any uh, thought into what their character's doing or anything like this, or, or even give the storyteller a chance to go away and make something more elaborate for them. Like like I said about the Cappadocian elder, you may arrive and he may have been diabolized, and you have to, you know, find out who killed him, because they have the book now. This, this, this kind of information, can search for information, can lead on to a number of stories that... I think sometimes limits the modern way of looking at role playing, and that's that's true of so many many modern uh, kind of games, though not just uh, Vampire the Masquerade. I'm also one of these people that will say that technology in your game is obviously something that can be used as a bit of a foil as well. So Masquerade, the fact that everyone's got a smartphone and can take photos and video and the like, that obviously provides role playing opportunity. But it's just, I, I prefer the simplicity of Dark Ages. Yeah, and there's a certain, dare I say, romantic feel to that kind of, uh, you know, age of chivalry, you know, knights on horseback and, and that kind of stuff. You can delve into that world, if you like, and, uh, and look at a more simple world where people's values are less global, if that makes any sense. Mm, it um, does. Where, where things that may happen in the next village over are mere hearsay and rumour. And what's going on in the next country? You couldn't even name the next country for a lot of people. And of course, with that lack of flow of information and general education, I think that that's a good segue into the other point that we both agreed on, which was the power of belief and superstition. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is this is the Dark Ages. Uh, I think they're named after the, the, the thought that uh, the light of Rome has gone out, so the age of reason, or humanity's first age of reason, has come to a close, and... Europe has regressed somewhat into a, a different breakup of states. These states are sometimes at war with each other, but they're all unified as mainly being Christians. Christianity is one of the major powers of the church. The Catholic Church is one of the major powers in the world at this point. I mean, the papal states, the northern parts of Italy, were controlled by the Pope. How many kings and queens of Europe also owed their allegiance to the Pope? At that time, this kind of disbelief that sometimes have uh, descended on the world that many people nowadays say, say they're not Christians or anything like that. Back then, nearly everybody's a Christian. And that's a very, very dangerous thing. If you happen to be one of the damned and you're trying very, very hard to either blend in or, at best, not raise the attention of people, the mere fact that people believe in the supernatural, that they believe that evil is a tangible force that can manifest in flesh. I mean, these, these are beliefs which are, which are very, very powerful and can make your life an awful lot more difficult than it should be. Yes, because in the modern era, many people would perhaps see um, what they thought was a, a couple uh, kissing in an alleyway that could easily be a vampire feeding on one another. Even if they saw more than they realised, their mind had probably, oh no, it's just too, you know, it's no, no such things as vampires. What am I thinking? Oh, perhaps I've had too much to drink. You know, oh, let's just go home. In the dark ages, I feel people would be more horrified and call up much more of an alarm. So, uh, you know, even the most simple things as feeding become much more dangerous. And I think that there should be that slight edge of danger to any Dark Ages Chronicle because whereas in the modern night you can spread around a bit of influence, you can spread around a bit of money, things can disappear and you can really cover up and maintain the masquerade, I would argue, a little bit easier. In Dark Ages, you've got that very strong word of mouth and belief. And the next thing that you know, if you've been caught being indiscreet with your feeding, you suddenly end up with people preaching against you from the pulpit or raising the mob with pitchforks and fire and, uh, and showing up in your haven in the middle of the day. Exactly. This is the thing where uh, belief is nearly everything. There's no, there's no TV, there's no radio. There's, like you say, there's only word of mouth, and we all know how even a childhood game like uh, Chinese Whispers, mm -hmm. you whisper a secret in someone's ear, by the time it comes back round to you, it's 100% different. Imagine that on a European scale. When we talk about Europe, to a lot of pe people in the Dark Ages world, Europe is the world. Yes, you know, yes. You know, North Africa is a, a, a wild and distant place controlled by the Moors. Off to the east is, is Russia. As far as we know, it just goes on forever. And then off... Out, out, past Ireland into the Atlantic, there's nothing. Just drops off, 
to the end in, into the abyss. It's all coming from the era where, where people are thinking that you know the land's flat. So this, this this superstition can also come into things like people from other countries being viewed with suspicion being witches or even traveling around as a vampire or moving from place to place becomes more difficult because of the natural suspicion of people of outsiders and one of the things which i found quite interesting rereading dark ages this week was that they made special attention of the fact that very very little of human society during this time actually took place after dark it was quite rare for the nobility to be holding events which started after dark. Most of the peasantry, of course, because they worked from even pre-dawn through to dusk, would be at home asleep in bed as soon as pretty much the sun went down. And there was very, very little socialising that went on, very much uh, different to the world which we grew up in, obviously. So, again, you've got this somewhat difficult and very, very hard balancing act as a vampire to try and walk, where you're trying very, very hard to, of course, live a nocturnal existence. But really, you're still living in a world where most of the activities occur during the daylight hours. And I think that's where the, the feel from the game, if I don't know how you feel about this, Adrian, is um, ghouls and servants are much more prevalent. They're much more useful. You can have your ghoul retainers protecting you and have you set yourself up as noble lord, it's too busy in the day to be disturbed, but, you know, the peasantry can come and have audience with him at night because he's such a busy man. Your ghoul's protecting your castle during the day. You can rest easy as a vampire. This sense of a greater division between humanity and vampires by them truly being the damned, you know, creatures of darkness. And that's something which does come through in a lot of the books, is how useful and how necessary your human minions suddenly become, in very much the ways that you were talking about then. Mm -hmm. In terms of uh, the titles system and also your, your status, I mean, obviously there's not an awful lot in the way of social mobility during this time in history. And uh, one of the, the really interesting things that I thought was that interplay between your status as a vampire versus what your status would have been as, as a human prior to the embrace. And one of the examples that they gave there was that an elder may, for reasons best known to themselves, spot a serf and decide to gift them with, with the curse. And now you have this serf who is now the primary childer of a very influential elder. And what you could end up happening then is having vampires who were nobility during their breathing days suddenly having to bend the knee to a serf. And I, I really thought that this was something that perhaps during my chronicle I didn't explore to the best of my ability. And it's really a concept that I want to go back and, and have a bit of fun with now. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I I agree, Adrian. I mean, the storytelling devices presented to you by the Dark Ages world uh, not only apply to your social status, uh, but also to your sex. Remember, this is a time where women have no rights at all. They are possessed by men to be embraced and then handed power, as much as you say uh, any man that you've ever known, and be welcomed. Remember that vampires tend to be asexual in their kind of uh, view of the world. They don't tend to uh, discriminate about amongst the uh, females or males of their uh, being. But for the first time, that, that's, a, that's a, a way of looking at things and how you can be handed power and what you do with it afterwards. Because if you've been uh, oppressed all your life, do you become an oppressor? Or do you rise above it? It's quite interesting kind of storytelling techniques that you can come out with in Dark Ages. And one of the things which you brought up beforehand when we were talking about uh, setting up what we were going to talk about tonight, that I, I don't think I've ever had put to me in, in just the same way, is the idea that if you are a serf or a, or a peasant, then you don't own anything at all. Even, even your own body, the right to do as you please has been taken away from you and you just simply accept that this is the way of the world and that when your children are born then that's going to be their life and their children and their children and and so forth essentially unto the the end of days however when you are embraced you become a member of the damned but essentially you are now free 
And I really like that that concept to try and get that across to players as well, that, that the first taste of true freedom that you've ever been given is because you are now irrevocably damned. It's one of the things that we used to explore in our kind of roleplay group back in the day when we were really exploring for the first time morality in a roleplay game. Remember in, say, like AD&D, you'd have chaotic evil, neutral, good, all these other kind of like terminologies. But what do they actually mean? And what is it actually like to roleplay that? That's one of the things that we used to do. And that's one of the things that really always spoke to us about from this game, this you know, the sense of freedom, but damnation at the same time. It's, a, it's, it's an interesting technique, an interesting story that uh, you know, anyone can pick up and, and, and just run with. Because what freedom is to you and freedom is to me is two different things. And what you do with that freedom is, again, two different things. Exactly. Now, I want to touch back on the, the idea of this superstition and, and also of belief in the power of the church. And we've, we've talked a little bit about that and also how, how vampires take portions of society and sort of twist it to their own ends so that you get this, this dark reflection or a mockery. You mentioned the, the Cainite heresy, for example, and I, I just thought I'd, we might touch on that for a moment. Okay, well, Cainite heresy is a fictitious kind of religious belief that Cain was not cursed by God, but blessed because he is God's favourite. God could have easily smited Cain for killing Abel, as, you know, perhaps he should have done. But instead, he marked him in a special way so everybody would know who he was and set him free into the world to do as he wanted. So this idea that vampires are actually blessed by God and therefore higher beings and more like the stewards of humanity. Remember that um, humanity is the children of Seth which is Adam and Eve's ill-forgotten third son. This idea that they are, you know, religious figures and that their powers are manifestations of God, this is something that you could only really preach to a, a kind of an entrenched society where the power of God, as you said, can be made manifest in flesh. And there you go. Is a, is a, is a, is a, uh, an individual that is quite obviously blessed because he can do all these wonderful things. And that does a lot to the vampire's mindset as well if you buy into that because you've got both sides of the coin. If you bought into the canine heresy and said that your character firmly believed that he was blessed by God and what you would then have to articulate is what does that actually mean for what your character is doing in terms of his purpose, in terms of how he interacts with other people, in terms of how he sees other vampires. And on the flip side of the coin is that you've got a lot of people, especially like the, the Nosferatu, who buy into the belief that they are well and truly cursed by God. And so they see that because you have your allotted role in life, again, coming back to that lack of social mobility, they believe very firmly that if you have been cursed and you are a monster, then you are beholden to play that role. And I think that some of the most frightening stuff that you can come across in the game is when characters get into their head that they are they have a preordained role and that as such what they do is taken out of their hands, that it is all the responsibilities abrogated to a to a, a deity, then suddenly you end up with, with some very dark places that you could start exploring in terms of morality. These are the uh this could go on to uh uh, to other vampires in the uh, say the Inquisition, revealing this, this, the existence of other rivals to get them burnt at the stake, and then blaming the Inquisition for uh, their actions and the, the the madness of that era. Definitely. So I mean, there's a lot of tools which are available, and I think we can come back to a lot of these when we do our episode on storytelling advice, and also when we we touch on the different sects which are available in the Dark Ages. Mm. So how about if we move over to clans now, because obviously one of the things that Dark Ages offers is a slightly different take on some of the clans, and also some of the clans that people who play Masquerade may only be familiar with, again, from from the history of the game, the the in-game history. The two that uh, that come out to start off with is uh, the Tsumitsu. Now, uh, you, you, I noticed, pronounced it somewhat differently. Uh, I believe it's a Polish word. and I, I work with some Polish people, and they pronounce it Shimizy. Shimizy. Uh, yeah, yeah. 
So okay. I think I think it's one of those uh, words in vampire that everyone's got a slightly different uh, take on. Yeah, you say potato, I say potato. No problem for me. And of course, the La Sombra players in the modern night would know both of those clans as the two of the pillars that hold up the Sabbat, really. And they are seen as well. The the Smitsay are seen as these rather inhuman, detached, sadistic monsters in the modern night. And the La Sombra are, are really not trusted by a- absolutely anybody at all. But their humble beginnings are somewhat different, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, uh, in the Dark Ages, uh, these two sects, the Camarill and the Sabbat, don't exist. There's no division amongst the clans. There's been no great diabolery of the La Sombra and the Shimizy antediluvians. So these are well-respected members of kindred society or canine society and I always but, like the idea of the Tsumitsa as being the, the lord on the hill and that there was this inherent nobility to them, it was sort of a the best way that I've ever heard it described is a, is a dark majesty to them. Yeah that sense of perhaps like uh, the, the legend of Dracula and that is sometimes tied to their clan. What I always liked about them is their total abandonment of their humanity the you know the the fact that they are exploring the next metamorphosis, because that's how they see it, see being embraced, is much more of a metamorphosis of themselves, and that they are no longer human. It's nice to see that, that even in the Dark Ages, many of the elders are still preaching this kind of metamorphosis kind of a, a thing that the, the Shimizu in the, uh, the modern era are known for. Although I think that the, the modern era view of metamorphosis is sort of an empowerment through or a philosophy underpinned by their use of vicissitude. Uh, whereas I think that the version that you see in Dark Ages is much more rooted in a almost a, a mental state. I'd agree with that, but then that's the thousand years of pollution of that kind of mindset has changed over time. It, but it's nice to see so many things in Dark Ages that do go on to, to have their reflections in the future. One of the clans that springs to mind is the Cappadocians. And of course, people who have only played Vampire the Masquerade say the who? Yeah, well, if you remember the Giovanni are always rumoured to have destroyed their uh, founder. Well, these guys are the other members of the Giovanni line that were consumed by them. And the thing that I always liked about the Cappadocians is that because... If you're familiar with the meta plot, you know that past 1444, when the diablery of Cappadocius occurs and then the the mass purge of the clan uh, occurs, if you're familiar with that meta plot and you still want to play a Cappadocian, I think that that would be an awesome role-playing experience to start off in the 1200s and slowly build up your character. And despite the fact that you know that this is going to happen in the back of your head, playing that sort of doomed, tragic figure, because we all know that it's not going to end well. That's right. I mean, you can tie it as well into other lines. Say you've played a Cappadocian, you have many undead allies the other side of the Shroud, the you know the uh, divide between the realm of the living and the realm of the dead. That when you are destroyed, perhaps somewhere how they turn you into a wraith. So then, for a few hundred years, you play as a wraith, and then for other, uh, uh, fans of the meta plot, you may return as say harbingers of the skulls and wreak your revenge upon the Giovanni. I know that there was a lot of division with the idea of the the harbingers of skulls having found a sanctuary somewhere in the the dark umbra or you know, beyond the shroud and returned. But I I really did like that plot because it sort of gave the Cappadocians almost new life that once we'd explored what it was to be a Cappadocian back in the Dark Ages and then of course you had the the very successful Giovanni Chronicles which were released, there was suddenly an outlet for you to bring all of this wonderful storytelling, all this wonderful plot that occurred 800 years beforehand and catapulted into the Masquerade game so I was actually quite a big fan of the idea if, if it's done well Yeah, and that's true of any kind of uh, far-reaching stories, uh, it, you, it, it needs to be interesting and evocative and not just basically Highlander. And I do remember that in, I think it's the second 
of the Transylvania Chronicles, there is a, a module in uh, in that where you're approached by somebody who is rumoured to be the last Cappadocian, uh, and she comes to the group because she knows that they are somewhat trustworthy. She is currently being hunted, and it is very, very strongly hinted uh, in the plot, but then actually... Uh, statted out in the storytellers section that she holds within her a ritual which when it is enacted allows your very existence to be removed from the minds of anyone who knew you. So there's there's this wonderful idea there that the Cappadocians use this in order to erase their existence from history almost. And then suddenly when they return, everybody sees them as this brand new force rather than this group that has existed outside of time almost. Uh, I always... I always liked that idea as well because I didn't really like the way that the Cappadocians were somehow done over or jumped or hoodwinked. You know, I, it never sat quite right with me that a bunch of Italian merchants could take over. You know, hedonistic Italian merchants always seemed a bit slightly wrong for me. But when when they got their chance of in the meta plot of revenge or allowing players to exact a revenge on behalf of the uh, Cappadocians, that always sat really right with me as well. So it's something I like to see. Yeah, there's there's something to be said for the the clan that is best known as sort of being almost mafia knockoffs, getting that sort of comeuppance. It, it, it's sort of, to me, one of those great ironies that, that the Giovanni get that, and they are the focus of the revenge, because, I mean, they have a very long and illustrious history of being quite ruthless and mercenary with people who cross them. The other clan as well that automatically springs to mind, um, and that and it's linked, uh, so we can probably discuss two clans at the same time, is, of course, the Tremia. Because the Tremia at the time of Dark Ages have only actually been a clan for about 150 years or thereabouts, depending on when you want to set your game. So they're very, very new on the, uh, on the kindred front. And these guys are still not entirely trusted. And despite the fact that they have an antediluvian that they can trace all of their lineage back to, it's still a case that their antediluvian was embraced in, I think it was 1147. So again, these, these guys would be very, very interesting to play because everyone's almost expecting that if they've done over an entire clan and now are rumoured to be hunting them to extinction, who are they going to set their sights on next? One of the things that I always liked about the, the Tremere this time is the Tremere War, if you remember this. the When the Tremere appear in, I think it was um, Romania, this is a stronghold of the Gangrel, the Nosferatu and the Shimizi. Mm-hmm. So these other vampires suddenly appear on the scene and start grabbing power and asserting their dominance on the area. And this this led to the uh, War of the Tremere, as I think it was called in uh, some of the books, where for the first time, three some somewhat separate clans that have been at war for the first time to start working together and make strange bedfellows to attack them. And uh, what we used to like to do back in my campaign is say that Tremere were off off the table for PCs and make them NPCs only, so they become quite mysterious. So Thormaturgy becomes much more mysterious because they can do weird powers that nobody quite understands and stamp their kind of sorceress foot on the world, you know, thaumaturgy has existed uh, in slightly different forms through uh, some of the clans, like the Shimizi have their Goldonic sorcery, and some of the other clans have had dealings with sorcery, but it's not the same uh, kind of understanding as the Tremere's. So when they first appear on the scene, this this kind of like um, emergence of wonder right before the kind of, uh, at the end of sort of the Dark Ages medieval period, of course, you have the Renaissance. So you then had this newer era of kind of um, enlightenment on the world where all these kind of superstitions have set to one side. It's like they take a step back out of the world and, you know, in being embraced, they kind of encapsulate themselves in time. I had grappled with that idea in my own campaign as to whether or not I would allow the Tremere to be uh, player characters. But 
it was almost universally agreed by my players that they said that in a world where the church was as powerful as it was, that people were not willing to gloss over the supernatural and the the mystery around some of their powers, that Playing a trem is almost asking for trouble because not only are you the new kid on the block in terms of being a brand new clan that has come to the fore on the heels of diablerie, but on top of that, your signature power is one which cannot be described as anything else apart from magic. And yeah. it almost seemed to me that the the players looked at it and said, you know what, it would be nothing but an uphill challenge to play one of the, these. Maybe we'll try them as a second character. And it was almost the write-up of themselves served as a deterrent to actually playing them. Oh, that's quite interesting. That's quite interesting. Or did you have in your group people clamouring to play Tremier and you, you took them off the table after that? I... Always used to have problems with Thaumaturgy at my table because it is so mutable, and in so many of the kind of splat books that are released, there always seems to be a new path or some new ritual or some such that basically hands quite an interesting level of power to the group or mm-hmm. to certain players in the group that they can use to nefarious ends against other PCs. Now, I'm going back to my you know, late teens kind of period where. In-party fighting was a lot more prevalent. Uh, (laughs) Yes, yes, I remember those days. (laughs) So, handing somebody thaumaturgy was like handing one of your players a big gun and giving everybody else in the the group a little paper shield to hide behind. So, it was like, "Mm, hmm. So, I took them off the table, but then that's just my personal experience with them. Although we did actually have somebody mention as we were wrapping up the game, because from the very outset, I always said that it was my aim to run a game that went from the Dark Ages all the way through to Modern Knights. And I said, make your decision on characters very much dependent on where you might want to be in 800 years' time. So take the long view and sort of encouraging them already to start thinking, getting into that vampiric mindset of the long view. And I had one of my players after about seven years turn around to me and say, I just tallied up the amount of XP that I've spent on my character and, my goodness, what I could do if I had a Tremere. And I think, I think, and at that point, my brain started to work in roughly the same way. And I, I actually spent an afternoon going back through all the books that I had with Thaumaturgy and thinking to myself, my goodness, I'm just so glad that no one played a Tremere. Those pesky Tremere, they can't be trusted. <laughs> well, that's the cornerstone of the clan. And of course, the flip side are the Salubri which are still able to be played at this time, but they made their foray into the rules in, was it the Dark Ages Companion or Book of Storyteller Secrets? Uh, I remember the first time I ever saw them was the Vampire the Masquerade Storyteller's Guide, 1st edition, but at that time they were still a bloodline and rumoured to have once been a clan. So I'm not sure when they they made that, that... that major switch or it became more prevalent or that was the idea that the developers wanted to take us down? Yes, I'll have to look that one up. But um, again, I mean, I see the attraction of the Salubri being very similar to what we were saying about the Cappadocians. And of course, in the modern night, there's a somewhat more violent path that they take as well, uh, where one of the seven essentially says, right, I've now found out what the great secret of the clan is, and I'm not going to seek Golconda. Instead, I'm going to look for revenge. And mm. then we start ending up with the Salubrianti Tribu, who are by far some of the most scariest, uh, the most scariest NPCs I've ever seen in the game. I, I'll agree with that. And also the mysterious disappearance of the Tremere anti-tribu at the same time. So, yeah. Exactly, exactly. But of course, I mean, whilst you've got all this rich metaplot, as we've said before, you don't necessarily need to use it. That's right, that's right. If it's something that speaks to you, I'd say pick it up and run with it to your heart's content. If you're reading it and it just doesn't ring true, or it doesn't feel right, just leave it on the side. Your game is your game at the end of the day. Exactly. So, was there anything else that you wanted to cover uh, in the terms of the clans in the Dark Ages, or perhaps some parting thoughts before we close it for tonight? Well, just one other clan I think we should uh, talk about 
is the Asamites. Oh, yes, 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 yes. How could we have forgotten them? The Asamites, for me, have always been somewhat of an interesting clan as well. They are sometimes portrayed as being mindless warriors and two-dimensional characters. But at this time, they have just been cursed by the Tremere. Oh, they are just about to be cursed by the Tremere. They're just still about wandering to be around. cursed. Yeah, yeah, they're wandering around Europe. They could diabolize who they like and are on a path sent to them by what they believe is their version of God to advance themselves down the line. So Diabri as a religion. To be perfectly honest, these guys, if you want to play something that gets you so far out of your normal mindset, I would highly recommend Asamites. We we had one guy who played an Asamite in our Chronicle. He started off very much as, as playing Asamite as Secret Ninja Warrior, and it was just really nice to see as he started doing a lot of background reading and thinking about how his character was going to explore the Road of Blood. It was really gratifying as the storyteller to watch that character mature and by the end of it, he was just this this wonderfully there was there was an edge of nobility to him, but as well the idea that he was following the the path of blood made him completely and utterly inhuman. I think that's that's one of the things that um, is good about uh, like you say player maturing with the, these kind of uh, these kind of roles. Uh, we had one guy who started off like a very similar secret ninja warrior kind of asamite using obfuscate all the time and chopping off heads with his giant Saracen sword. Great. <laughs> as, he, as he matured, what he started to read is much more historical stuff, especially about Saladin, and changed his mindset, and he became much more of a, dare I say, Morgan Freeman character in Robin Hood, Prince of oh, yes. character. Much more of that kind of fellow, rather than the hiding in the shadows, ch- chopping your head off. But again, he, he decided to follow the path of blood as well, and was a adherent to that, but with much more of a kind of religious feel to it. Uh, there's a hint of um, Islamic feel to the first edition Asamite book for Vampire the Masquerade, and he ran with that. And I think that the roads are something which, uh, if anyone wants to explore them uh, in greater detail before we get together to record part two of this Darkling, I think that they're going to realise why they warrant a discussion all by themselves. I fully agree. I fully agree. I think that wraps it up for the clans i think so thanks very much for joining me this evening steve it's been a great and to just kick back and take a walk down memory lane with with uh, dark ages vampire that's great i'm glad you don't mind listening to me ramble on about uh something i'm quite passionate about <laughs> hopefully those people out there in tv land don't mind the both of us rambling on for a, for a short while about this if people want to get in contact with either one of us, is there a great way to get in contact with you, Steve? Yeah, you can contact me at Vergast, which is V-E-R-G-H-A-S-T, at hotmail.com. And if you want to get in contact with me, I'm still using the same email address as I was when I was running the Mirage Arcana podcast, which is Mirage Arcana, or one word, at gmail.com. And I'm sure that uh, I speak for Steve when I say that we'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Definitely, definitely. Okay, so this is Adrian signing off. And Steve signing off too. Until we meet again in part two, where we're going to take a look at the roads for Dark Ages. Thanks for listening. All right, Chris. Yeah. Great Darkling. Nice and lengthy. Mm-hmm. We really appreciate that. And what what did you really enjoy about this? Um <laughs> I think the best thing about it is it's quite a it's it's definitely a concise and uh I would say it gives a, a good concise but broad overview of the of the Dark Ages setting because I think a lot of people when they think of Vampire the Masquerade and White Wolf, they think of like the modern day horror. And people miss out on the fun of this really core part of classic World of Darkness, which is the Dark Ages setting, because it has a very different feel when you play the game to typical modern day, you know, vampire or werewolf. It's um you, because you don't have all the, the typical, you don't have the camera or the sabbat, so it's nice to have this initial introduction by the guys because 
I know they said they're going to look at some more things in detail, like the uh, paths and some of the other clans that turn up. And it's nice they highlight how some of the clans are quite different in the setting. And, you know, there are other clans that you just don't hear about in modern nights. In particular, I think they focus quite a bit on the the Cappadocians, uh, the Zamiche, and obviously the whole host of trouble that the Tremere kick up. <laughs> it makes for a very different game, even though there are so many common elements, of course, the kindred and the clans and so forth. But it's a very different, it's, it is a very different game and has a very different feel. Yeah, I mean, we've got plenty, I think we have plenty to say on it. Um, where do you want to begin, Mike? Well, what we were discussing right before uh, recording was the idea that you could say have a uh, a knight who is embraced by a Nosferatu and really mm-hmm. becomes a uh, bottom rung in the kindred society. And, you know, you can have a peasant which is embraced by, I don't know, some powerful venture in the city. Uh, mm-hmm. And how that can cause, like, bitterness, jealousy, and can really turn the uh, the classes of the Dark Ages on its head. And that's something that I really hadn't considered before. I, I've run uh, mm. uh, Vampire the Dark Ages, sort of. We'll go into that later. Um, yeah. And it's it's pretty strange, and it's something that... It, it's apparently in the core book, but I just completely missed it. But you can get a lot of story out of that, I feel, um, whether it be a one-shot or some uh, overarching theme in your chronicle. Yeah. I mean, the, the flipping of kind of like... Because obviously... The Dark Ages setting is a very, I think the easiest way to describe it is it's a very caste-based setting. Obviously, you've got your, you've, you've got your slaves, then your serfs, then you've got your, your freemen, and then you've got your lords and nobles, and then eventually king, queens, emperors, whatever. And the interesting thing about the setting, and this goes back to something we want to cover in our, our main show as well, is, um, is that, as you say, the the um, the dynamic between characters can be flipped upon embrace because, obviously, as you say, you, you go from being this noble, this knight from 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 a, a a well-known and respected family, and suddenly you're you know you're in the ditch, literally, um, and you're now this ugly and uh, well hated creature, even amongst your own kind. But then. To go even further, you, because there's so much within the Dark Ages setting to do with things like the, the Cainite heresy and, and where kindred fit within religion and faith, even those things, that entire changing of caste has, can lose, be, become a meaningless thing because you realize that actually those are trappings of, of humanity and you've now been elevated above humanity. Why should you care about what you, what mortal things you dabble in when really you're a vampire you're this greater than human creature so there's a lot of um i think there's a lot there's a lot to to get play out of in that by by investigating um where vampires fit into society and how their society works and is influenced by such matters definitely and another thing that's pretty interesting is just how small society can be um mm. you know in in the modern nights they talk about how the wilderness is very dangerous uh, for vampires because of the the lupines, but yes, in the dark ages, the wilderness is only a hundred feet away, and <laughs> yeah. the lupines can just walk right into the village. It's a lot different. Travel is extremely dangerous, and really gives a new uh, sense of urgency to the players in in many respects. It's an elevated sense of tension, and this is something which I think even if you never have werewolves turn up in the game to just know that to get always to always remind players and always have in the background kind of like on the you know in the background that there's there's that ever present danger that could turn up you know always having rumors of of such things really adds to the atmosphere of the game much like say um you know when we reviewed unhallowed metropolis a while back Mm -hmm. it's like how you don't always have to have zombies in the story for it to be about the zombie apocalypse, just having that ever-present fear that something bad could happen. Right, right, definitely. And another cool thing they brought up was how no one's actually outside at night. Like, all the fears yeah. and such, they occur during the day. Um, so that really makes things a lot tougher for Kindred. And you kind of have to wonder, like, how there's so many of them 
when it's so hard to feed and, and keep their secrecy. But then again, they're really uh, it's very knife set. It's very easy though for, to cover up feeding as well because you you don't have to deal with. And I'm, we're going to touch on this about you know the difference between the settings because of technology. You don't have to you you don't have modern forensics. You don't have modern recording devices. Mm. Meaning feeding is quite simple in certain respects to to, to hide. Um, so Chris, you've you ran or played in Dark Ages, correct? I've I played in a year long chronicle which um, covered many of the chronicle uh, the the pre written chronicles. So there's the one which takes place in oh hell, this is a, there's a whole list. There's one there's one there's one storybook which is to do with um, is it a, oh. A castle somewhere in in England, and the changing of the guard, and oh, you know the yeah. embrace uh, of an old king. Wills is the, uh, yeah, that's the one. You'll mostly know the names better than I do. Then, um, and then we played through um, this. We we played through kind of combination of everything to do with the fall of Constantinople. So our characters, our characters were an itinerant. We're literally known as the itinerant company. They were a group of vampires that travelled around um, working for whoever. Um, they were a ragtag bunch of uh, mercenaries. So they went to Venice, they met Nazis, they dealt with everything that's in that Chronicle book, which is, I've <laughs> forgotten again the name of that one, but that's that's obviously a prelude into the fall of Constantinople. So we all, our characters went to Zara, they went into the Carpathian Mountains, uh, they went to the island of Santorini, which is, which is uh, featured in the... The, the the collection of short stories that they brought out for Dark Ages Vampire, mm-hmm. cool. which is a really good book if anyone should read something. That book is excellent. Um, and, you know, our characters went all the way to, to Constantinople and uh, we, we played through Jerusalem by night. Someone's character diabolized some important character. In, is it Michael in Constantin- Constantinople? What? So there's a whole thing... Of, with yeah, there was some or killed him. I don't know if it was Diablo or killed him, it's but huge, man. it was all. Yeah, it's um, we went through all of it, and um, yeah, my character was quite insane. Literally, he was a uh, a Malkavian um called uh, Gregoire uh, Gregoire de Morangias, so he was French. That's and uh, it's pretty interesting that someone diablerized Michael because I think that's. Uh, oops, spoiler. Uh, somebody did that in the Dark Ages Nosferatu, or uh, yeah, Dark Ages Nosferatu clan novel by Gerbad Fleming. So, right, Italian. Um, yeah, crazy stuff happened in Constantinople. Michael was a uh, he took the image of the uh, of the Archangel Michael, I believe, and was like, Yeah, huge. I, I know he died, I can't quite remember who killed him. I, it was kind of all a bit, it all got out of hand at that point and our party constantly got got split on what they should be should and shouldn't be doing um we also had the siege of um oh what's the siege of the carpathian mountains in there yeah loads of spoilers like this you can have the entire siege against you know zvod and and um and zamishi kind of uh their flesh crafted creations mm-hmm. so my malkavian basically eventually learned how to a cause madness through writing so essentially created a giant banner which was written in runes that caused madness when it was looked upon, which against a mortal army is quite good. And he also learned how to cause uh, madness through music. So whenever he, um, he eventually gained a horn from a king, so whenever he blew on it, kind of Gimli style, it caused um, the people that could hear it to go insane. Um yeah, it was my character was quite crazy. He seemed to screw up at the most inappropriate times, but then also sometimes he would be told to go in there on your own, have a look, see if you can do this, but we'll back you up and he'd actually complete the mission on his own. Everyone was like thinking, how did that happen? The dice were completely against you, but yeah, it's great. It's a great little game. It's a great game and setting to play through simply because there's so much to investigate. I mean, ah, there's so so many cults. So my character became uh, a Dionysian cultist as well. So he was also involved with the Cainite heresy as a uh, as a seer of Cain. So he did a lot of like you know spitting blood up and reading uh, reading the future from it. 
yeah, that's basically what I played. <laughs> Crazy man. Um, yeah, so I ran Dark Ages of Vampire, but not in the correct century. Uh, I was playing more okay. in, the, uh, in the 15th century, and or or running the game, and I felt that actually Dark Ages of Vampire, the uh, the second supplement, worked pretty well for that, um, despite like there being more gunpowder and the like at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was uh, very easy to transition all the skills. Uh, you basically just had to say you could have archery or firearms, and yeah. most of like the uh, the the stuff about the classes was still fairly uh, applicable. And really, just you had to change the imagery, just do a quick little reskin. So that was a lot of fun. And I kind of want to highlight the uh, the difference between uh, Vampire: of The Dark Ages, which is the first supplement from 1996, or mm-hmm. first, first core book. And Dark Ages Vampire, which is from 2002, I believe. They have actually yeah. a very different uh, atmosphere to them. The first book, Vampire of the Dark Ages, uh, has a lot of... Uh, it's very dark. The artwork is very uh, very line-pencil. A lot of, like, uh, like, Guy Davis kind of stuff. Yeah. And when you go and look at uh, Dark Ages Vampire, it's, it's, it's actually, I believe, called a... Uh, a storytelling game of epic horror where it has okay if you even if you just look at the uh the uh splat portraits from the uh, two-page spreads you have a lot of these like high noble types uh very dramatic poses and the like it's it's a much more romanticized version of the setting i believe and that kind of comes out in the war of the princes uh meta plot which they use in that okay yeah i think the impression i've gotten the things that i because I asked, obviously, my um, storyteller when we were playing Dark Ages Vampire and Vam- and well, when we're, sorry, when we were playing Vampires the Dark Ages as opposed to doing Dark Ages Vampire, and it's the, it's the difference also in his, his in his view was simply because Dark Age uh, Vampire the Dark Ages the time period of of the things that occur within that game are actually technically that is the dark ages whereas dark ages vampire because it takes is set somewhat later um things have moved on it is it's actually borders more into the start of the renaissance doesn't it uh it's only 30 years it's uh yeah uh it's 1197 for vampire the dark ages and dark ages vampire is 1230 so mm. 30 years have passed and uh 33 years of metaplot as well i don't think it's I don't really know when the Dark Ages technically are. I think that's more like before 1000 uh, mm. current era. But historians can probably correct me on that. I think I think it's, there's definitely there's a definite change in in tone and mood between the two products. That's that's for sure. Mm. And um, yeah, I would definitely. I mean, there's there's still there's 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 still plenty of. Um, of stuff in uh, Vampire the uh, Dark Ages, like Chronicle add-ons that we never even got around to playing when I was in the group as well. Like, there's an entire section that covers um, the invasion of the Mongols as they're moving west yep. and so forth. Yep. There's, there's, yeah, there's huge amounts in there. And of course, that gives you a wonderful time to it to deal with, with the Eastern Kindred if you really wanted. Um, yeah. That's actually an interesting thing to bring up real quick. Um Dark Ages Vampire and Vampire the Dark Ages, like that entire Dark Ages line, had a lot of really weird supplements. Like, you know, you look at Vampire the Masquerade and it's like, okay, this is clearly a supplement about the Sabbat. This is clearly one yeah. about ghouls. And then with this you get like, well, oh, we're gonna do a supplement about Viking vampires in Scandinavia. And I think yeah. the one about um the Mongols. All the all the yeah, and then another one about all the heretical cults that are going around at the time. Right, right, canine uh, heresy. And, and another one that's completely devoted to the canine heresy. So yeah, there's it's um there's as far as books are concerned, some of those are pretty bloody grim reading in places. Definitely. Um yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't mean to say that they were bad. It's just like no. it's just really very broad uh, smattering of books, really, uh, which mm. is cool because you get a lot of variety. So before we go, 
uh, I definitely want to highlight um, for for Dark Ages Vampire, they had these other fat splats supplements basically uh, for different supernatural types. And you may remember in uh, in Darker Days number three, Vince and Mark talked about uh, Dark Ages Inquisitor uh, specifically uh, Vince's uh, game that he was thinking about playing. And in Darker Days sixteen, uh, we covered Dark Ages Fey. Uh, a little bit, but specifically, we haven't really talked about Dark Ages Mage, which I ran a one-shot of, and haven't touched okay. much about uh, Dark Ages Werewolf. Uh, so briefly just mentioning Dark Ages Werewolf, I haven't run it. There's actually two books. There is Werewolf the Dark Ages, which is not really a supplement for Vampire the Dark Ages. It's actually a supplement for Werewolf 2nd Edition, mm-hmm. and basically just gives you some Dark Ages gifts, kind of gives you a feel for the... Uh, the setting and story of the Dark Ages with uh, regard to werewolves and the guru and just kind of like extends the rules. And there's also Dark Ages Werewolf, which came out in like uh, towards the end of the World of Darkness. And yeah. that one, I don't think it was very well received. I know Mark didn't really care for it that much. There's a lot of like gifts that were reprinted when you could easily just adapt the rules from like Werewolf Revised or something. Um, yeah. And there's actually not that much information on the Umbra, which is kind of unfortunate because you'd think that would be different and pretty interesting in the Dark Ages. It would be significantly different, essentially, because the Umbra being a reflection of the world, it would be a very different beast. But yeah, so Dark Ages Mage, I've looked through a fair amount of that, and it's quite significantly different to Mage Revised, well, Mage Ascension Revised, isn't it? Oh, definitely. The entire magic system is significantly different. Yeah, that's what I was just about to mention. So you have the uh, yeah each basically paradigm. They're called fellowships. They have um are they called fellowships? Now I can't even remember. It's been a long oh, time, the... guys. Um, <laughs> yeah. Each of the splats has a foundation, which is kind of kind of a basis for the paradigm, and they have different pillars. And you kind of combine pillars and your foundation to create magical effects. And it really just gives you a, a, a paradigm to work with, which is pretty cool. I know some people mm-hmm. have found like holes in the paradigms, like um, like Order of Hermes just can't do things, which they're known for. Uh, which okay. Is kind of unfortunate. But you can easily just kind of reason through it uh, in many cases. Uh, one of the coolest things with Dark Ages Mage, though, is the fact that you know how in all the White Wolf books they have the two-page spread, you know, with the cool like, cool like portrait and all that. Yeah. Dark Ages Mage has six-page spreads. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty sweet, and it really goes in depth into the uh, different splats and all that, and gives you a lot to work with. Uh, the only complaint I think I had was that there's not enough rotes really. Mm-hmm. Having more of those would really help you reason through the uh, different paradigms. And kind of show you how the pillar and foundation system can work. Because it's a little weird when you're getting into it. But then again, yeah. it's a mage game, so it's going to be weird no matter what. The the key thing, again, why that's a good... Um, if you enjoy playing mage and you want something slightly different, is simply because, well, you don't have the technocracy. <laughs> you don't have any of that. It's um, you have. I think you have some of the... They you, they do present. I'm trying to remember. They do present some of the the, the splats that you can play with in uh, Dark Ages Mage are are forerunners to groups that then appear within the technocracy, but they're not. The antagonism is between all the groups. They, you don't have anything such as the formation of the the Council of Traditions and then the and anything equivalent to that. It's more kind of a free for all in some respects. All right, right, very good. So um, uh, shoot us an email over to uh, darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. And it's also a great place to uh, send us any any uh, feedback or suggestions. We always like to, to hear that kind of stuff. And uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter or uh, just tweet us, uh, darkerdaysradio on Twitter. And uh, the other place to follow us is, of course, Facebook. So Darker Days Radio on Facebook. That's pretty much all I got to say. All right, very good. Uh, Thank you, Chris. Thank you, everyone. And uh, we'll see you all very soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.